The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. This week, Gina Chon assesses how China's 20 years of membership of the World Trade Organization have played out compared to expectations in the far-off days of 2001. And later, Jonathan Guilford test-drives Harley-Davidson's New Deal to merge its electric motorcycle unit with a blank check company. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Welcome to the Views Room from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Richard Beals, Global Deputy Editor of Reuters Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from New York City. For this week's episode of The Views Room, I'm connecting with my colleague Gina Chan in Washington to talk about China's fractious role in global trade 20 years after the People's Republic joined the World Trade Organization with, I think it's fair to say, widespread support at the time. Later on, Rob Cox, our Zurich-based global editor, is chatting with Jonathan Guilford, a New York colleague who's sojourning in Copenhagen, as it happens, about Harley-Davidson's plan to give its electric motorcycle business a higher profile by merging it with a blank check company, also known as a SPAC. But back to the WTO in China. Gina, I was living in Hong Kong back in 2001. There was a lot of fanfare, although, you know, China was already in the global trade system up to a point. It was a big moment for China to join the WTO. And I think it's fair to say that certainly initially, most people thought this is a great thing to keep China in the system, to help China grow its economy and grow its middle class and pull people up out of poverty. And a lot of that has actually come to pass, but I think a lot of other things have too. So where where does it stand now? There's been um, an almost 180 turnaround here, especially in the United States in terms of how they view China coming into sort of the global Western economic fold, if you will, where, as you say, in the beginning, it was met with a lot of fanfare. And there was a thought in Washington that uh, economic liberalization would also bring political liberalization, which obviously hasn't occurred, at least not in the way that Washington had hoped. In addition to that, we did see a flood of imports here, cheaper goods, which was obviously good for consumers, but bad for a lot of manufacturers and uh, companies competing with China. So there's been a lot of soul searching of the effects of all of that and what can be done now to contain China's growing economic heft. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting, isn't it? Because this is what trade is about, in a way. It's competitive advantage, as they say, in theory. And if China can make things cheaper and sell them to people in the US for cheaper, then that's at least in aggregate supposed to be advantageous for everybody. But of course, if you're if manufacturing shifts from one place to another, all the people who used to do it in that first place can't do it anymore. So this is the problem we have. I mean, I tend to think perhaps some of the or more of the blame is attached to China joining the WTO than may be fair, but nonetheless, it's a real issue for lots of communities around the U.S. and elsewhere in the West, I think. 
Yeah, as you say, it, it may be more than their fair share of blame. I mean, there's also been a lot of automation in the manufacturing sector where the output from the United States has actually grown, but the number of people employed in the industry has fallen. Uh, but that's largely due to robotics and, and other things, not just China. But Right. It's much easier to blame the People's Republic than robots. So it's become <laughs> a bipartisan punching bag in Washington. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the few things that is. It's interesting that way. One of the things you say in your piece um, on breakingviews.com is to say that there's a version of Beijing-style industrial policy that's now being rolled out in the United States. So I think certainly most Western readers, they're sort of familiar with the idea that the government is heavily involved in industry in China in a way that, you know, Western governments mostly, or certainly the more capitalist Western governments are not. And then there's this question of joint venture partners, probably at the behest of the government in Beijing, sort of insisting that Western companies share technology, share intellectual property in a way that, you know, is, is a little bit anathema to, to the Western way of doing things. But what, what is it that the U.S. has been doing the last few years that, that kind of also undermines this, this trade liberalization, which is, after all, what the WTO is supposed to be about? Yes, well, after years of trying to get China to look more like the United States, more recently, the United States has been responding by looking more like China. Uh, that started a bit under President Donald Trump, which when he instituted the trade wars and imposed tariffs on more than $300 billion worth of Chinese imports. President Joe Biden, his successor, has sort of doubled down on that kind of policy. And his top economic aide said earlier this year that states backing national champions is a reality of the 21st century economy. And the United States is Going along with that, where you've seen the chip sector in particular because of shortages in the semiconductor industry receive billions of dollars in subsidies and approval from the Senate, which is something that we hadn't really seen in the past, um, along with other advanced technologies like artificial intelligence and that sort of thing, where Right. Policymakers in D.C. are saying we need to step up and put money into this the way China has or we're going to fall behind. Right. And this is I mean, this national champion idea. It's it's interesting because it's kind of it's a mix of a kind of perhaps Donald Trump's sort of the idea at the center of, of what he did was perhaps more this sort of they're ripping us off. We need to be self-sufficient kind of combination right we're we're america we can be self-sufficient we should do that hence the tariffs and so on um it's you know but then there's it seems like biden is continuing some of that but also you know trying to make it a more let's say a more coherent perhaps more global approach to china than, than trump which was very much america alone yeah well you have seen the u.s reach a truce with the European Union on steel tariffs. Uh, looks like that's also going to happen with Japan. And all of these things are meant to calm things down with allies so that they can sort of pose a united front against China. 
So that is starting to happen. But in but in other ways, they definitely are looking at trying to contain China sort of using its its own tactics against them. Right. And, you know, we started out with this is an anniversary piece about China joining the WTO. Now, the World Trade Organization is this forum for various things, including you know, it has goals about poverty, reducing poverty. It has goals about trade liberalization. It, it's a forum to deal with trade disputes. And some of that is still being used, but it feels like that, you know, obviously the US and China could agree something different between themselves, which could solve some of these problems we're seeing. But is there anything the WTO could do or that rather the members of the WTO led, I suppose, by the US um, could do to change the organization in a way that would address any of these problems? Yeah, well, the WTO has sort of devolved, at least according to critics, and to sort of a dispute resolution mechanism as opposed to a body that promotes rules-based commerce. And so you're seeing a lot of cases brought to the WTO, and now the appellate body that decides some of these cases has basically been rendered useless because it doesn't have enough people, enough judges on it, uh, partly because the United States and others disagree with what that body has done. And the WTO has also sort of failed in its original purpose for decades now. It hasn't passed any sort of major agreements on trade. So getting back to some of its original purpose, possibly passing rules on digital trade as part of sort of modernizing rules that could help sort of reinvigorate confidence in the uh, organization. Right. I mean, you're right. The, the digital trade part is sort of being dealt with through taxes at the OECD. If, if there's a global approach, that's where it is right now to digital trade. Of course, the organization, organizations like this, whether it's WTO, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, they all depend on their largest constituents, it's pretty hard to change much unless the constituents are on board. And if they're at loggerheads like China and the US are, that's a problem. What's your, just just briefly, what's your prognosis for that, that relationship? That's partly why I'm more pessimistic about the WTO, unfortunately, than not, because it is based on consensus and the biggest players are <laughs> the United States and China and uh, they are definitely not seeing eye to eye. So that's not um, a good recipe for the WTO's future. All right, Gina, thanks for that. It's, uh, the mood has changed a lot since uh, those heady days 20 years ago. Thanks, Richard. Jonathan, great to connect with you. I'm glad to see you're here in the European continent and you've been writing about sort of transatlantic stuff uh, you wrote about this Terminix Rent-A-Keel deal. We'll talk about that in a second, but I'm really interested in a piece you wrote about Harley-Davidson, Hog, as the uh, ticker suggests. Um, they've done something quite quite interesting in, in the sense that they've decided to split out their electric bike arm and and sort of merge it into a SPAC. This is pretty fascinating. How do you, how are you reading this in the bigger in the bigger bigger context? of companies like Harley that are moving from legacy businesses into the electric vehicle future. Sure. Uh, thanks, Rob. And yeah, it's very interesting given I think what we see is a 
broad question across the industry about how these guys making internal combustion engine vehicles end up moving into the electric space. You've seen, obviously, the market has been rewarding any company that has been aggressive about getting underway with that transition and delivering a credible plan. I think the issue for Harley is twofold here, right? It's a company that on its own terms has underperformed somewhat in its core internal combustion engine market. It's kind of an old brand. They have had issues with investors in the past kind of raising their hands and saying that they felt that the company needed a new direction. So a twofold problem for them. What you end up seeing with most of these companies is they try to keep the house together, right? General Motors, Ford in the US, they have kind of been very firm saying, we believe that doing the electric transition in-house, keeping this all consolidated as one company, this makes the most sense for us going forward, even though you have seen some commentary about should they split those efforts out. Harley isn't quite doing the full separation. They're choosing a middle path. But I think what's really interesting here is they are trying to unlock some of that market enthusiasm for the electric transition and really begin to get some credibility for that in an early stage of the journey. Yeah, it's interesting. You say Harley, I was just looking back at the stock. This is a stock that traded at 60 bucks five years ago and is now at 38. It got a bit of a lift the other day when they well, we can go into the into the actual mechanics of that transaction. Got a lift. But it's still, you know, it's quite a dog for, you know, the hog is a dog more than anything else. (laughs) That's right. And I think what is interesting about the transaction is that you begin to kind of ask, will this open Harley up to a new universe of investors? AEA Bridges Impact, the SPAC with which Harley-Davidson is merging its electric bike unit, has been very vocal about wanting to find an investment that's ESG friendly. They want to be environmentally conscious. They want to do a deal that is forward-looking in that way. And if you're Harley, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, right now, I'm not the most ESG friendly investment. When you're thinking about guys kind of sitting on those uh, gas guzzling choppers, that's not something that brings to mind kind of, you know, the Greta Thunberg friendly transition to the future. By merging that division with AEA Bridges, maybe it opens up the electric part of the company to a universe of investors who are a little more forward looking. Right. And so basically, just to, to kind of go through the mechanics, they took this business, it's called Live Wire, and that is their Elect- I mean, I guess it's an electric motorcycle that they produce. I haven't seen one, but they had already taken that and put it into a sort of separate operating division, as it were. Now they're merging that with AEA Bridges, and Harley Davidson will continue to exert control. I mean, they'll have something like 74% of, of the new company's equity. Yeah, no, that's correct. So it's going to still be consolidated on Harley-Davidson's balance sheet when they report results in the core company. So for them, this is a way of really keeping control, keeping their hand on the wheel, but at the same time, getting a little more access to, let's say, some market recognition and some credibility in terms of their electric goals. Um, You've seen something similar to this in other markets. Intel recently talked about possibly listing its autonomous driving focused unit, Mobileye, while still similarly keeping control, keeping that consolidated on their balance sheet. So it's an option for these companies that are in transition to try and maybe get a little bit of financial payoff without having to take the operational hit from a full separation. 
Okay. And you think over time they'll end up, you know, buying the whole thing back? Is this a way to just bring in risk capital and keep it a little bit out of the the main the core operating company? Or is this like this is the new Harley Davidson of the you know the future? Well, that's the interesting question, right? You can plausibly see a future where we have entered a new normal where internal combustion engine vehicles are definitively on the way out, even in specialist categories like motorcycles. And in that kind of future, you're really looking at a world in which Livewire should be expected to persistently outperform and then eventually overshadow core Harley-Davidson. In terms of what happens to the structure of the two companies at that point, Harley-Davidson should be able to pretty much pick its own future if it maintains this majority ownership structure. So it gives them optionality down the road and in the meantime lets them kind of see from market signals which direction they should be going. Okay, well, that's interesting. But now moving on to sort of more more pedestrian uh, stories, you wrote about Rent-A-Kill Initial, which is a UK pest control firm, has just done a huge deal in the States. Talk talk to me about this. What's I, I didn't know you were also, in addition to being our electric motorcycle columnist, I didn't know you were also so big a fan of pest control. <laughs> That's right. It's, uh, it's. Uh, I guess you could say it's a bugbear of mine. Living in New York, you get very acquainted with uh, with the world of cockroaches. But yeah, no, so Rent-A-Kill is a major European player. It's expanded kind of all over the world uh, across a, th- a few markets through just a enormously accelerated pace of M&A over the past few years. They've done, you know, uh, well over 200 deals, kind of growing their presence further really in just a lot of markets. This one stands out from their previous record of uh, deal making just in size. So on an EV basis, including debt, this is a $7.3 billion deal. I think for Rent-A-Kill, this is you know a new management team relative to, I think, what a lot of people think of when they think of the name, which is in the 2000s, there was a little bit of turbulence that the company experienced thanks to an they, expansion they gone, drive. Right. You had written and you wrote about how they'd kind of gone into all sorts of different markets, whether it was like, you know, deli- package delivery, things like that, which weren't key to the uh, killing of, of rodents and pests. Exactly. And that perhaps unsurprisingly, didn't really work out. The company did end up exiting that business. It sold its CityLink parcel delivery unit in 2013. The new deal is much more in their wheelhouse. This is right down the fairway for them. It's a business they understand. Strategically, it makes a lot of sense. The US market is attractive. It's growing quickly. The one issue for us as we were looking at this is just, this is an expensive deal, right? They picked their moment well, Terminix uh, shares are down pretty sharply over the course of the past year. So it's an opportunistic moment for them to move in. Nonetheless, this is a 47% premium that they're paying. Synergies bring that down a little bit. But when you're looking at it compared to the operating profit that Terminix is going to deliver, plus those synergies, it still looks like a little bit of a marginal call in terms of the price that's being paid. All right. Well, that's uh, Jonathan Guilford on bugs and hogs. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks so much, Rob. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Gina, Rob, and Jonathan for taking part. Thanks also to our producer, Sharon Lamb. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Newsroom and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Check us out every day on breakingviews.com or on Twitter at Breaking Views. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.